I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, offering iconic tracksuits, classic polos, and the new Youngline sneaker. Originally designed in the mid-1980s, it's our favorite spring silhouette, and it's back. You can get it now at SergioTacchini.com, and follow them on Instagram at SergioTacchini underscore official for updates. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout, and you'll get 30% off your order. I lost to Cristiano Carati, and I played so bad, and I was hoping they don't watch that match. getting weird <laughs> listen i gotta give you props man you're in a, a home with a kid and i'm gonna give all props to uh every parent out there that has at least one child one's enough if you've got more than one god love you but you've got one caitlin i saw a great video the other day uh that said uh homeschooling is bullshit <laughs> this isn't school. It's like uh, it's like trench warfare. Like we just kind of take turns being on the front line, and we're not even like the healthcare workers who are actually on the front line, actually dealing with this. Uh, but it feels like a battle nonetheless. Um, and let me tell you, I look forward to recording and editing these podcast episodes in a way that I never before appreciated, and I listen to them after they're recorded and edited because they're such a nice escape. Yes, they are. Well, I hope we're giving some respite to uh, a lot of people out there that are sitting in their homes spending a lot of time either with their kids or their spouses or their partners that they want to maybe kill at this point. Um, but yeah, it's been a pretty crazy uh, time in our lives. I mean, we're going to look back on this some 10, 20 years, hopefully, and be like, geez, remember that time, uh, COVID-19, when we didn't have any tennis? But we've got podcasts. We've got podcasts. Now you caught up with one of my absolute favorite players of all time uh, on the phone last week. He is a Croat. He's a wild man. He's a Grand Slam winner. He's now a coach. There's a couple things I want to ask you specifically about in this chat you had with him. First of all, you guys have known each other for a very long time. There's a lot of biographical overlap between the two of your careers and lives. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Uh, I, the first time I ever saw Goran was, uh, I explained it in the podcast, but it was in Italy. Um, we were kids playing a junior tournament there, which was the biggest junior tournament in Europe at the time in Milan. And uh, I, that's the first time I remember hearing about him. That's the first time I remember people talking about him. And of course, you know, he does what he does there. And then subsequently for the rest of his career, 
Um, so we always interlapped one another, one another. We're both born in uh, 71. Um, so we're the same age, um, give or take a few months. He's a little bit younger than me. But, but yeah, I just would see him, you know, and obviously what he did in his career. And then even the year that he had at Wimbledon um, that we, we talk about in the pod was uh, the year that I won my first Wimbledon doubles title. So we just had these random like things and we both went into doing some coaching afterwards and he's done a phenomenal job with the, with the work that he's done with the players that he's worked with. So I don't know. It's just, uh, we're, we're a little nuts as well on the court. So I kind of understand his vibe. I understand his passion and uh, he's just the great, he's just, he's been the same guy from the start to the finish. He's just such an awesome guy. He's so fun. Well, it was interesting because you were giving me shit um, a couple of days ago for going on the Irish podcast Second Captains and talking about Goran. And just for the record, I'll tell you what we talked about. They approached me. I've been on the show a couple of times. It's like Ireland sports podcast. It's hilarious also because you just get to hear Irish people in your ears, you know, and their accent is so fun. So they were like, oh, Caitlin, we want to talk to you about one of our favorite Wimbledons. Oh, Caitlin, can you get on the phone and talk to us? And I was like, of course I can, you guys. Um, if I can understand all the words you're saying. And so they were like, yeah, we're going to do a Wimbledon episode because we're not going to have Wimbledon. And this is our favorite match from Wimbledon. Is it one that you can talk about? Do you remember it? And I, of course I did. And so we basically went point by point talking through the tournament. And so it was actually kind of a nice preparation to then hear Goran's version of his, of course, 2001 title victory coming into the tournament as a wild card. And I have to say the story that you got out of him about the wild card is possibly my favorite part of the whole podcast. There's a whole section just about how he was not even thinking he was going to get into the tournament. I mean, it's so great. He's just, I just love him because he's such an open, open book and the stories that he tells about, as you said, the wild card, the actual tournament, his, um, let's say apparel. It's just an all time classic moment in sports and his story obviously wrapped up because we only get about 45 minutes with every player that we um interview uh so he had to fit it all in in that time but oh my god i could have talked to him for hours about that whole two weeks and just his just his life in general i mean this guy grew up in the in, in the civil war and in, in uh, between serbia and croatia and yugoslavia as it was called back then and i mean it's just incredible what um I don't know what he's gone through in his career. And a lot will say he probably underachieved, but I would say with his sort of personality and his emotions, maybe he, you know, he, he achieved exactly what he was supposed to. There's one thing that I want you to explain because you guys kind of gloss over it in the interview, but it's something that I've heard now a couple of times, which is when you go to Wimbledon, you don't necessarily see the other players in the locker room because not everybody is in the same locker room. Can you unpack that just a little bit? So when people hear it, they understand what that means. It's so British. Okay, so at Wimbledon, you know, every single Grand Slam, everybody's in the same locker room, obviously, right? But of course, Wimbledon, because it has this sort of hierarchy of like the royals and the members and, you know, it's just, it's what we love about it, okay? I mean, you can argue about that's segregating people or whatever it is, but at Wimbledon, it's kind of the thing, right? One time, no, twice, actually, I got to go into the members' locker room because I was the number one seed in doubles. They don't allow doubles players in there anymore. But um, so Goran, because he was a wild card, you know, sub, don't even worry about the three times or whatever it was that he made the final at Wimbledon. He's down because he's a wild card, so he's ranking so low. He's in the lower locker room, okay? So well, in the guys, it's the East uh, West, I think, locker, they call it because um, they're to the right of the members. So the members' locker room is on the same level 
but it's a totally different locker room. So you've got the top seeds and the, and the, and the former champions and the members are in one locker room and all the plebs, as we call them, are in the other. But the women's, it's the members' locker room is on the same level as the men's locker room. And we're in the north-south, meaning we're in the bottom, like we're in the like basement area. So there's technically four locker rooms for players at Wimbledon. And Goran was in the pleb locker room because he was like essentially, you know, as we say, lower ranked. So he was in uh, that one. So he didn't see Patrick Rata, who was, of course, his opponent in the final, because Pat was one of the top seeds. So he was in the members locker room. So you, don't, you actually don't see players often because of that. Obviously, we see each other all the time in regular locker rooms. Yeah. But in this one, well, you can avoid each other. And they did, even though they were good friends. All right. Well, the last thing I'll say before we get to this incredible interview, it's probably my favorite one. Uh, Like I said, the phone quality on the phone, I did the best I could, but I think it still sounds pretty great. And thank you, thank you, thank you, by the way, for asking him about his tattoo. In fact, the most insane tattoo I've ever seen, uh, at least in its original state, uh, which is a shark circling around a cross with a rose in its mouth. Um, and the fact that he had something actually interesting to say about that beyond how insane it is, is a real testament. So thank you. Thank you for getting that question in on my behalf. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, and yeah, we just want everybody to know, you know, the, the podcast sound quality is always a little dodgy because we're either on the road or we're trying to grab these players at the last second. And uh, this one was obviously done socially distanced from one another. He was in, uh, he was in Croatia I'm, of course, in New York. We were doing it on the phone. So um, bear, with this, bear with the sound. We hope, it's, uh, we hope it's good enough. If it's not, too bad. Don't listen. Turn it off. All right, Renee, thank you again for making this interview happen. It was a real pleasure to listen to. Uh, without further ado, here is Goran Ivanisevic. Hello. Hey, Goran. Hey, Goran. How are you? Hey, 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 Renee. How are you? Hey. I just want to thank you for doing Racket Magazine podcast. We've had a lot of really cool people do it. And uh, we thought, what better person could we have on here that will make us uh, laugh and learn about the world of tennis um, than Goran Ivanisevic. So thanks, Goran. Thanks for joining us. No problem. It was uh, it's a pleasure to, to be there. Goran, you've got like such a great storied life. Actually, you and I have known each other a long time. We are the same age, 71 born. I think the very first time I ever saw you, Correct me if I'm wrong. Was uh, I saw you for the first time at Avenieri Cup in Milan? Do you remember that tournament, a junior tournament? Yes, it was one of the biggest uh, tournament under 16 in in Milan. Yeah, did, long did time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Now, am I right in saying that you won that tournament? Uh, yes, yes, I won. I won. Uh, yeah, yeah. These right. are the things I remember. You remember. You have a good memory. The reason <laughs> I think I remember that is because I think I lost first round. So well done on that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, thinking about like juniors, some of the players that have done really well over the years have done really well in juniors and some have not done well. What do you think the thing for you was about being really good in juniors? How did that translate for you going to the pros back then? Well, actually, that was uh, a very, very very easy and very well because I didn't play too many too many juniors. Uh, I played actually one uh, U.S. Open. That was very, one interesting first round. It was Cenk who was superstar back then against guy that nobody knew in that time. Pete Sampras first round. Wow. And uh, that year 
Chang got a white card for the main draw. He won a round or two, and he was everybody talked about Chang, but nobody. And I went to watch that because I didn't want to watch Chang. I wanted to see Sampras. I don't know why, but I just wanted to watch. What, why do you? What did? Why Sampras? Did you hear about him or? I heard about him, and I actually liked the way he played. You know, kind of good serve. He was already attacking. I mean, Chang was just uh, you know, Chang was Chang, <laughs> and uh, running everything back. But uh, Sampras. I, he had something, you know. I I I just like the way he played. I just like way, and I was watching. Uh, usually, I didn't go and watch the juniors matches, but I went, I went to watch that one, and I really. And then a couple of years after, you know the story, you know who who was Pete Sampras and uh, the guy who ruined my life a couple of times, but still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, well. And he didn't yeah, know that I was watching him that day. You you he didn't realize you were scouting him all the way back then. Yeah, I was scouting him even then, and uh, I, that didn't help. That didn't help. My scouting didn't help. <laughs> Clearly, you didn't write it down. No, I made some mistake. I made yeah. some mistake in writing down. Well, well, don't worry, Garen. We're going to get to uh, the guy that ruined your life, but later on. But um, you know, for a guy growing up in at the time Yugoslavia, um, how did you get into tennis? I mean, what was the catalyst for that? Actually. Uh, I grew up in the very, probably the most unique uh, tennis club in the world. It's uh, split, and uh, it's probably only tennis club in this, in, I can say. I never heard of one tennis club that, with nine courts that gave four top ten players. It's Milic, Zerko Franulovic, myself, and Mario Anki. And we live all in the same street. Wow. So it's it's my father. My father took me and 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 I just liked it. It was like football or, or tennis, and I think I I I choose the the right one. And it was very and I was lucky, you know, with a lot of good players, club players, older players, so I could I could play with all of them. Nikki Pilic um, was doing quite well when you were growing up as well. Did that help to have someone at least from your country? Show you that it was possible. Uh, yeah, and Baniki was very good with us because every time he was in Germany, so when he came back, you know, he always played with us, and it was not easy to play with Nikki. You know, he was really tough. You know? <laughs> yeah. He didn't let you sit down, no drink water, nothing. You say in back then when we played, nobody drink the water, so you don't want to drink. So <laughs> he was was tough practicing, but Nikki was always uh, he he. he he put the time and play with us, which was very, very great. And uh, was also Marco Stoya from Split. Uh, he was around 60, 60 in the world. I had a lot of, a lot of guys growing up. I can play and have a good, uh, good sparring. So, so it was a really no tournaments. We had this uh, satellite, you know. Before now, there are futures, and back then was satellite. You have to stay for one month uh, playing the tournaments to, to to earn a couple of points, and it was a big one in. in Back then in Yugoslavia. Um, how difficult was it uh, the period of time when you know you were having the, I mean the wars in Yugoslavia, which obviously ended up splitting your country um, from Croatia to Serbia. I mean, in, interestingly enough, I've actually been to split. I went and played. A, I played a bunch of tournaments on uh, the coast in like Mali Losinj, in Bol, in Rabat. I don't know if I'm saying them right, but no, I played. Yeah. I played some really small tournaments in uh, the, the, you know, the coastal towns of Croatia. I just found it to be such a beautiful country. But how difficult was it when that period of time was going on for for you and for players from, at the time, from Croatia now? 
But it was not an easy, easy moment for us, not an easy time, not a easy to travel, not easy to play. We could not call anybody. It was very, very, very difficult, all the pressure. Not easy. You know, you could not, uh, I cannot say I was 100% concentrating on my tennis. Mm-hmm. And that uh, hurt me a lot of times. You know, you, you know, as a tennis player, you're alone there. And uh, when you step on the court, nobody asks you how you feel. Did you sleep well? Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you prepare well? And my mind was a lot of times not on the tennis match, not on the court. But then I realized yeah, I can't go like this. You know, I need to put my mind, I need to do something good. You know, more matches I win, better I play, it's better I represent my country. So uh, it took me a while, but then after I was doing it better. I would imagine uh, a lot of people don't, you know, even ask you the questions of how are your family doing? How are your friends doing? Um, I think that's something that, that got lost um, considering what that country went, what your country went through for 10 years, how difficult that must have been. Yeah, it was tough to reach the family for, for uh, you know, for a week, you know, I could not speak to anybody. But I, I have to say that my career, actually, when I started to, to, to go up, I actually started in 89 when was Yugoslavia. So I, I became a good tennis player that was all country. And in, that happened in your country, in Australia. I, that's when I broke through. You know, everything started there for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about that run in Australia and what that meant for you. Um, sort of going forward, obviously, you were a really good junior. Everybody knew you. Um, like I said, I, I remember seeing you for the first time. And you were the one name that I remember from um, from that tournament that everyone was talking about, like your talent level, that you had the talent, but let's face it, you're a little bit nuts too. So how, how like important was that run in Australia and basically like letting you believe that you could really play with the best players in the world? Actually, I, I went there and that was, uh, that year was second year of, uh, Australian open move to, to Harcourt from, uh, yeah. Kuyong. And I remember that uh, I was ranked around three something, three hundred in the world, four hundred, going to first to Adelaide to play qualies. Yeah. Uh, no, no, anything. I stayed in the family, Yugoslavian family there. I did not qualify, but luckily I got in like a lucky loser, and mm-hmm. I got to the quarterfinals. I think lost to Woodward. Not a was, uh, very good. Yeah, another lefty his hometown. So, but still, I was I was quite uh, quite happy, you know. So I went to Sydney to play qualies, but uh, I was not even close to getting in qualies. Uh, so then uh, I went to Melbourne. I and then this huge uh, huge run came. I qualified and I made the quarters. I know I beat Fiti in the second round. <laughs> Fiti was seeded. And in that part of the draw, Villander was second seed. He lost to Krishnan, I think. Kind of uh, from that part of the draw, went to the quarters, and I lost to Makir in the quarterfinals. It was the well, first big uh, paycheck for me, and uh, first breakthrough. I, so I became 120 after that uh, after that week. Yeah, and you had a great. You got to the fourth round of French, um, I believe, that year as well. But that was really the the stepping stone for you to start having the results at slam level. Obviously, the following year you made the semis of Wimbledon, and and then of course yes. eventually you know you made your first final at Wimbledon, and 
92. Do you, do you remember that moment when you, cause explain to people like that don't have this amazing thing of walking out onto the court at Wimbledon and, um, we'll get into Wimbledon and, and what's just recently happened. Cause we're not sure when, when this podcast will go out because, uh, it could go out in two or three weeks or, or not, but obviously devastating was Wimbledon uh, canceling yesterday. But explain that first moment when you walked onto the court at Wimbledon, um, after seeing it on TV and just envisioning the fact that you could walk on, because it's a special thing to walk out on the court for a final at Wimbledon. Uh, it is, but uh, I have to go a little uh, more back in 1990, first time I walked uh, in the, my first semifinal yeah. against uh, Boris. And uh, I've never been even close. I, all my matches I, I, I play uh, on uh, round courts and the quarterfinals I play on court one. All court yeah. one. So in first time, my coach took me actually before the semifinal just to sit down on the Sedna court, just to see how that looks like. And I remember going into the to the court. First of all, Becker standing next to me. I was so nervous, uh, you cannot even imagine. And then stepping on the court, I say, okay, <laughs> is that some kind of other door so I can go out? But uh, actually, after like 10, 15 minutes, I felt great. Mm-hmm. I felt great. I won a set. I served for the second set. Until then, I didn't think so much. And then I realized, oh, I'm serving for the second set against Boris Becker. Wow. Uh, and I beat him I beat him uh, in French Open just two weeks before that. Mm-hmm. So I was like kind of, okay, this is good. And then kind of, I got a little tight. I lost that set. I lost the third set. I lost in, in four, seven, six. But the uh, moment that uh, you play on that court is the most beautiful for me tennis court in the world. It's just special. Mm-hmm. The grass, the okay, was not so green in that time in the semis when everybody, you know, ran to the net. Yeah. And uh, there's no, not so much grass, but still it's, it's a beautiful court. I, I remember those days of being able to run into the net at Wimbledon. I, I still do, but, but it's very different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very different grass now. But yeah, I remember yes. my first time out there actually was my doubles final. And I remember the only thing I kept telling myself was don't look up, don't look at the box, don't look at the raw box, <laughs> don't look at the box. <laughs> like I was trying to like focus on the court, but it's so hard because it's a, it is a court that you dream about walking onto. And when you do, you have, and you're, it's such a big match for you. It was semi, for me, it was a doubles final. And I remember thinking, oh my God, don't let the occasion overtake what is the most important thing. So I would suspect that you made a big, it was big for you to learn from that serving for the second set. Because safe to say, if you'd won the second set, you probably would have won the match. What did you learn from that moment then? First of all, I, I, I realized that, uh, you know, playing with those guys, it's not like a big deal. You know, I can, yeah. <laughs> I am capable to do better than semifinals and Grand Slam, but mm-hmm. I need to be more focused serving on this big, uh, big uh, moment not think uh, on the other side of the net, just do what I do the best and serve. And uh, I feel uh, that this is okay. I was not so actually in bad mood when I lost the match. I was kind of disappointed, but happy that I reached the semis. But I knew that my time will come very soon, that I can uh, repeat that and do something better. When you when you reached your next final, I, I was assuming that you went into that match thinking, all right, on grass against Andre. I've had the experience now. We we know who won. But other than, you know, knowing and remembering the loss, was there anything at all that you got out of that match 
was it the, the fans? Because let's face it, I mean, you were so popular, so popular at Wimbledon. Do you, do you remember that? What it, what's the one thing that you probably would take back from that match? Actually, and, he was, he was uh, uh, first of all, I was thinking, okay, uh, uh, I was actually more nervous like than him because I was the absolute favorite in that match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believe it or not. I beat Sampras, I beat Edbert there. Uh, he never won uh, Wimbledon. Uh, I beat him before that on uh, hard court on clay. So I said, "Why? Well, I mean, I cannot lose on grass." To be honest, he was a better player that day. Uh, he he was uh, returning well. He I kind of lost myself because he was the first guy that stayed back against me there, mm-hmm. and I was like, uh, I didn't know in the beginning. I was I didn't know what to do to stay back to come in. Uh, I was kind of my game plan was kind of lost somewhere, but uh, in the end he played a better tennis. He deserved to win. He played better tennis, and uh, that was that was that was it. You know, I was I was really disappointed because I I I, I saw my chance and I felt thirty I don't know thirty three or thirty five eight and I still won the match. <laughs> This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, revitalizing and disrupting the status quo since 1966. Follow them on Instagram at SergioTacchini underscore official and go to SergioTacchini.com for more. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout and you'll get 30% off your order. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You, well, I mean, obviously a lot of us remember, I mean, for, for Andre, that dramatic sort of way that he won it. Um, but but then against Pete, you know, losing in five to him, um, I'm sure that was obviously, you know, a surface. I think, I think you guys, you have to admit, you and, he probably changed the dynamic of the grass at Wimbledon with that final because it was just an acing fest. I mean, you guys were serving so unbelievable. Do you remember a little bit of the, not the controversy, but the conversation that went on up that, like, maybe we should slow the grass down? Do you think that that inhibited a lot of people like you or, you know, seven volleyers, people that like to come into the net? Do you remember that match and, and the conversations after it? I mean, I remember a couple of our matches in in, in Wimbledon. Uh, we played uh, this '94 final, '98 final, '95 semi-final. 
1990, 1992, uh, also semifinals, you know, but against, against and then before us, Kevin Carr, and I play him there. I mean, I could not uh, pick his serve for half an hour. So <laughs> it was just grass back then. The faster ball, uh, grass was faster. Everything was faster. And there was uh, from 128 guys on the, in the draw, only Agassi was staying back. Yeah. And uh, you could not uh, do anything. It's just uh, even... Lendl, we were talking there back then. He was serving and volleying, and how many times Lendl served and volley during the normal tournament? So the grass was like that against me and Suppress. You cannot expect uh, that we're gonna do some beautiful tennis. It's just who's gonna break <laughs> first. And uh, usually, he was always the guy who was waiting, waiting for my mistake, and somehow he he broke me, you know. But that 1998 final that I regret the most, that's one that I, I really played the better tennis. I was, uh, uh, and somebody showed me the statistics. I lost that final because of my serve, because I was not serving well. I was breaking very easy. I was there, but I was not serving well. So my serve deserved me there, but. You know, when you play Pete, you can't expect uh, rallies on the grass in <laughs> those days. How much did that um, mentally sort of drain you after losing that final? Because the next couple of years after that were were pretty tough when you lost that final to Pete in 98. I mean, you made the fourth round the following uh, year, but yeah. you struggled a little bit for a couple of years. Yeah, I struggled. Yeah, yeah. That, that final really, really, really killed me big time, you know. I didn't want to admit, but uh, I was very disappointed uh, because I really felt that this is my time. And uh, slowly I was going down and down and uh, playing worse and worse. Just it was not, you know, I I was kind of didn't want to think about that final, but hurt me a lot. And then uh, I dropped to 125. I was not injured. Okay, I, my shoulder was starting to hurt, uh, but uh, not because. That I drop, I just, I just went into the bad, the bad spell of uh, you know game. Uh, I didn't know what to do on the court. I didn't feel comfortable on the court at all. I mean, I, I think it's really hard for people to understand that, like somebody such a great player and had so many great results, can sort of go into this despairing lack of confidence for a period of time. I mean, it's hard for people to understand that, but. It happens to everybody. Yeah, it's tough to for you know. I know that uh, you know when we playing, uh, people are watching and say, how is that possible? It's easy to stay in front of TV and, you know, be smart and, uh, and, but it's, you know, when you, it's just, you know, I was practicing, I, I remember I lost, like, I think, 10 first rounds in a row, you know, I was practicing good, I did everything good, but match comes, I don't know what to do, it's just blocked, I, I was, and it was getting worse and worse and worse, and then this 2001 miracle. came miracle because I remember that 2001 uh, I played the qualies actually I asked for the wild card for uh, Aussie Open they didn't give me so I played the qualies yeah and you lost first and round I, do you remember that match and I played the court I remember I played the court first of all I was looking for the court for 15 minutes it's the last court on the, this uh, railway you know 
So I was going and thinking, what the heck am I doing? Looking for the court that I cannot find, playing volleys. And already walking to the court, I already tanked, which is not nice to say, but I already tanked the first set. I mean, I, I didn't want to play. So the match was over in not more than 38 minutes against Peter Luxa, Czech guy. And then I took the plane back, so I was saying to myself, okay, we have two options. You stop now or you try, but you try, you really try, not uh, this. this. This was a waste of time and money and... Uh, and whatever and uh, just bad for everybody so i went to play challenger in heilbronn which i did well final i went to milan i went to run close to roger and then slowly i skipped the whole clay court season uh, and then what happened in wimbledon uh, still today i don't know why what happened how it happened and <laughs> i some things you cannot explain. Some things, it's like somebody else was controlling everything. You had a bit of divine intervention, you would say, there. You, you obviously asked for a wild card. You weren't guaranteed of getting it, but being such a great champion in there, there in the past, it was pretty tough to say no to you. I mean, three finals, one semifinal. Um, do you remember when they let you know that you had the wild card, or did you have to, did you have to wait, or did they give it to you pretty quickly? Uh, I was playing Queens uh, on the day they were deciding and I lost to Cristiano Carati and I played so bad and I was hoping they don't watch that match because for sure they're not going to give me anything. They give me white cards not to come, not to play. But luckily, in 2001, they didn't have eight British players to give white cards to. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I, they probably, I yeah, was like four or five guys, but okay, it's okay, I think Goran deserves one. So luckily they gave me the wild card, knowing, okay, he's going to lose early. But if they knew that I'm going to... Oh, no, but listen, I could not beat anybody. And, uh, and what I did before Wimbledon, which you don't do, you know, one week before, I was bored. I was in Herzogenbosch. So Head sent me the racket, and they said this is the same racket but different color, and was completely different racket. So what can you do, you know, one week before Wimbledon? And I said, okay, I, I can play. I cannot play worse than I'm playing. I can play the same, or I can play better. So I'm gonna keep those rackets. There are only three rackets, and I <laughs> played whole Wimbledon with. Actually, two and a half rackets. Actually, three rackets, but one uh, racket had a bad grip. So there was only for emergency if I, you know. So three rackets. <laughs> and uh, also, uh, Takini sent me three shirts. Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, when they see that I'm winning, they send me whole bags, but I returned that bag. So I had the three shirts, three rackets. I was washing every day, and one I threw it uh, in the in the after I beat I think Rizetsky or Rodic. So I was thinking, okay, man, now I have to calm down. We have only two shirts now. Luckily, I was not changing the shirt. Oh, you threw it into the ground. <laughs> yes. Did you? Oh my and, god! Uh, Did you think to yourself, oh my, wait a second, hey, can I can I get that back? I've only got two. 
Yeah, but I was thinking, like, yeah, what I'm doing? I have only two, but I, I put in my bag another three records, all the records, you know, just, you know, people, they see, I have not only three records, they have like six, but the other three were not to, to use, you know? <laughs> so I feel <laughs> like, look at this professional guy has a six record, but there are only two and a half records, to be oh honest. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Well, you, you have been, uh, obviously, um, one of the comments that you said is that one of the reasons you love grass is that you can bounce your racket and it wouldn't break. So that was really important to you yeah. that week. Actually, it was very important. But I was actually pretty calm. I said to myself, I felt, you know, every round that I was winning and playing, that I felt something is going might happen. And I said, okay, you just need to keep your cool. Whatever happens, don't. No breaking records, shit. no throwing records. Yeah. And I was very, very good. And I was uh, on grass. You don't break the strings. Yeah. Very rarely. So I was just praying. I mean, uh, I can't break that. If I break two records, the strings will be disaster. You know? <laughs> well, thank God you didn't yeah, get to well, have a lot of spin. So that helped. Yeah, yeah. No spin. So I was just <laughs> And, uh, you know, every match was, was, was uh, more and more interesting that uh, one uh, semifinals. But I think that, that one, uh, Wimbledon regrets to give him Wildcard when I beat yeah. Henman. <laughs> there was obviously the whole, the whole country wanted Henman to win, but I think there was a, I think there was an underlying group of Brits that really loved to, to see you have another chance to win it. Were you were you actually excited um, when when you were in the final and and Pat beat Agassi, or were you kind of sort of hoping that Agassi would be the guy you'd face in the final again and get revenge? Actually, I, I want I wanted to pet because pet is my great friend and a great guy. And but you know, funny thing, I realized like a couple of years after that uh, Agassi was throwing for the match. I didn't have a clue that Agassi was throwing for the match in the, against yeah. pet. So I was I mean I was watching somewhere on TV and I said Jesus, uh, oh it's Agassi throwing for the match. And I, but I wanted Pat to win because we we both had uh, chances before and uh, yeah. we practiced a lot when we were when he came on the tour because our coaches, uh, my Bob Rett and his uh, Bob Carmichael was they were good friends. They all right. from Australia. We so call them we mates. Were, we were, they're mates. Yeah, they're mates. They mates, yeah. and uh, yeah. so we were practicing a lot, and and I really loved Pat. So. He won his match, and then my roller coaster of three days began. began yeah, and and uh, it was it was a very very interesting match, to be honest. Yeah, that was actually we do kind of have this random thing that I saw you as a as a kid at the Avenue Cup in Milan, and that was the year that I won my first uh, doubles title. It was in two thousand and one, and one obviously the thing that we remember so much other than winning was the rain. It was like so much rain that year. There was so many on and offs. Obviously, they have the roof now. We do, we wouldn't have that issue. But I remember having to play back-to-back matches. Um, my, my doubles partner, Cara Black, played three matches on Sunday. Um, we couldn't – the women's final was on Sunday. And, of course, you were pushed to Monday, which was probably – I was I remember, I can tell you the story. So I flew back to Australia on that Monday, or I was flying to the States, actually, and – your match was being played while I was flying because it was on Monday and it was the people's <laughs> final, they called it. Yeah. So they let everyone in. And uh, the, the guy, the pilot, the, the guy, the captain of the, the plane came on and said, for those of you interested 
Granny Vinita Richards just won Wimbledon 8-6 in the fifth. And I remember thinking, oh my <laughs> fucking God, I cannot believe I missed that match. And I mean, part of me obviously was saying, Pat was obviously a good, he's a good friend of mine and, you know, I wanted him to win. But then my other part of me was like, oh man, I'm so happy for Goran. So, so everybody was interested in that, including the pilot of my, my friggin' plane. So, I mean, go through that. Yeah. Match, um, and the, <laughs> Were you happier that it was, and nothing against the crowds at Wimbledon because they're friggin' amazing, but that final in particular, that was nuts though because you had literally half of Croatia and half of Australia and everyone that lived in London was there that day. Actually, that was probably the best uh, tennis atmosphere we played in Wimbledon. Match was, tennis was not the, the best, but uh, atmosphere was um, like a football. Yeah. Really... Yeah. Uh, whole uh, Australian cricket team was there supporting Pat. Uh, it was really, really fun to play. You know, I was really nervous just to begin to play, and uh, we were both nervous. It was not a beautiful tennis. It was an interesting fifth set. Did you guys talk uh, to each other before the match? Like, because you were such good friends, were you like, all right, mate, like, you know, all the best? Or uh, actually, yeah, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't talk because I was uh, actually in the other locker room. <laughs> I was in the, oh, you're in the, in the locker room. room. Yeah, I was actually not even there. I, they, they, I was on the street, the locker room. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. No, no, I was in that other locker room. That uh, so I didn't see Pet. It was for three days. I played the semis and then uh, I just saw him before I was entering the court. The match was incredible. I mean, as you said, the crowd, the tennis was a little up and down, but it was to be expected that both of you were nervous and you knew how big a moment it was. But take me through that last game because if anyone has ever wants to watch you at your best as far as your personality on the court, your emotional ups and downs, the fact that you have always worn your heart on your sleeve, I mean, that last game was bonkers. I mean, you were on your knees, you were praying. I mean, who does that? <laughs> that, that game was really crazy. I was watching uh, like a couple of months ago that game. And first, uh, the first point, the ball was going wide like two meters and I was there. And I said to myself, man, let it go. But I, somehow I hit the volley. I don't know why I hit the volley. Nervous game. I was rushing a lot. I could not put the first serve. I wanted to finish the because first time I was in the final, but for the title. Yeah. And then match point, first one with the double fold. And I yeah. just said to myself, put the serve in the court. And when I'm nervous, I cannot hit the slow serve. I have to hit it harder. And every time you went to the wrong side, but second, again, double fold. And then third, I hit actually pretty good volley and he hit the lob. Yeah. And my my legs were so heavy that I could not lift up. I wanted to lift but I was I was blocked. <laughs> so I said, Come on, this is not happening. So I thought, okay, fourth match point, fourth final, this is it. And then I missed the first serve again. And then somehow I I I said, Okay, first serve, second serve has to go in just put it in somehow and, and, and uh I put it in, he put it at the net and I did. That was it. I was just. I, I lost it there. Thank I saw God. the ball going to the net. Thank God, because Thank I don't God. know what would happen if if that ball came back. <laughs> so I mean, listen. That was obviously a moment that changed your life. You know, you go back home. There's 150,000 people in splits. 
you'd like jump in the water, like you just partied it up for a long time. But I mean, it was such a deserved win because you really, you deserve to win at least one of those, you know? And uh, I think the only person that you could, that could even remotely feel probably worse than you uh, was, you know, when Andy Roddick couldn't quite get over the line either. So um, there's been some great players that have not won there. So I guess, you know, for you, it was yeah. a huge moment, but um, you know, I, I want to, transition because like when you think about all the ups and downs mentally ups and downs all the emotional ups and downs the hard work the digging yourself out of holes to come back and do what you did at Wimbledon is that you think what makes you sort of a great coach as far as not so much the X's and O's of how to beat somebody but more the emotional side of being able to you know be able to reach into what you are as a human being emotionally to be able to pass that on to you know Chilich and winning the US Open and being able to explain what you're going to feel and go through. And now, obviously, around Novak. Well, Novak doesn't need to be told how to win a Grand Slam, but, you know, is that the influence that you feel helped you because of the emotional part of you? Does that make you a better coach? Uh, definitely, definitely. Definitely helped me a lot, definitely. I, I came and I decided that I want to be a coach. Luckily, I have a lot of friends who already became a coach. So, you know, I, I'm not a guy who things that knows everything. I like to talk to a lot of people uh, if I can learn mm -hmm. something. But definitely uh, when I start to mar with Marin and uh, when he reached the final of US Open, that's something that I could talk to him, how he's going to feel on the court, what he should do. And the good thing that he played the guy who was also his first Grand Slam final. So that was kind of easier but uh, definitely that uh, what I felt in my time what uh, emotionally all this uh, losses all this uh, helped me to 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 adjust and and to become actually with Marin what uh, was a really great success you know because nobody expected him to to win that US Open and to pass that experience to him and uh, the way he played the final like he played already 20 finals before that so that was really for me as a coach it was satisfying <laughs> to sit there watch there and seeing a player that you coach winning you know US Open so it, it's mm -hmm. a really uh, big thing is it I, I, I get asked this myself because obviously I played and I, I now coach as well and and I walk away from coaching some matches sometimes and just say fuck me like coaching is so hard because it is so stressful you know um is it is it more do you find it more stressful or do you detach from the wins and losses of your players do you, you was it more difficult to play I or, think, or no most difficult more difficult is to coach when you play i think you deal with your emotions you let it out you you scream you yell whatever you do but but there as a coach, you know, first of all, you have to sit there. Camera is on you. You have to behave, I mean, behave, have a good face, <laughs> yeah. positive. And everything, uh, stressful emotions, you know. And people think, you know, better player it is, is going to be less stressed. But I think it's opposite. Better player yeah. it is, the coach is more stressed. Yeah, more pressure uh, on you. More pressure because they want better results. Now with Novak, you know, it's an unbelievable thing to sit there. But, you know, with him, sometimes the final is not good enough, you know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so only winning, 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 winning. And you knowing mm -hmm. sometimes he has to lose somewhere, you know. Mm -hmm. Hopefully not. But uh, and uh, it, it's very, it's not easy to be, you know. People think, ah, what do you do? You sit there, you have a good seat. 
and you enjoy. <laughs> no, it's no. enjoyable when the uh, player plays well and when he wins, but it's 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 uh, you know stressful every day. You know, practice and some things they don't work well, and uh, mm -hmm. it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's fun. You know, I I really find myself in that, and in, I enjoy it. To be honest. What's what's the thing about him? I mean, you've known all the greats. You've played against all the greats. I mean, you were great. Like, what's the thing about him that you feel separates him from anyone else? For example, let's uh, we we saw now in Australia mm -hmm. the transformation. You know, he was you know winning, and then suddenly he's not feeling well in that black hole, and the ability to turn this around and win the matches. His mentality, his, his uh, mind. It's, I never saw that Rafa is is a fighter, but Novak can turn the match out of nowhere. You know that uh, he's really. You know, I never saw somebody like that. His mental uh, is so strong mentally that that it just fascinates me every time when I see. Yeah. You know, now I'm seeing closer because I'm sitting there and I'm uh, involved the team and that but I was always before because he's from Serbia it's you know it's the same mentality Croatian Serbia mm -hmm. and I was his big fan before and watching that how he, he mentally he can do that is just is just unbelievable unbelievable transformation unbelievable ability to to do that yeah I think I think that's what is good about someone like you as well and um you know, even Boris, when he had his uh, time coaching and you see with Michael, I think the when you're an emotional, I mean, Michael wasn't very emotional, but, you know, you and Boris were. I mean, I think when you're emotionally, you're, you're a great player, but you're emotional, I think it makes you appreciate these, these, these guys so much because you just think, wow, it's just, I mean, this is something that I always admired about Steffi Graf, you know, it's just like, they're just like these machines that go out there and they just put disappointment behind them and can change something so quickly. Um, Caitlin, my uh, my podcast partner, um, we're, we're getting to the end of this now. Uh, she wanted me to ask you about um, your tattoo because she said it's the craziest friggin' tattoo, I think, on a tennis player. What does it, <laughs> what does it symbolize? Uh, first of all, I, I got ideas. It was 1997 or 98 in Miami. Actually, I was in L.A. Sorry, before after uh, before flying to Miami, uh, so I was I wanted to put shark cross and rose, you know, shark because it's my favorite animal, cross because of the cross and rose of like symbolizing love. Or so I did that and it was kind of fun. But then I was you know actually the guy suggested me I wanted to put on my shoulder, but the guy said put it on your back because you don't see it only in the mirror. So if you don't like it, you know. You're not going to be upset. <laughs> so I, 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 so I did it on my back, and uh, after like ten years after that, I wanted to put something more. So I put like two hands uh, and like a little shades around to make it bigger, and that was hurting. Like five hours, I was sitting, and 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 I, I remember saying to the guy, "Listen, you have 15 more minutes." Whatever you do, you do. After that, I'm getting up and it's finished. <laughs> so it was kind of rushing. Uh, but it's uh, fun because sometimes I forget that I have a tattoo. You know, you know when it's summertime, or, you know, when I see myself in the mirror, ah, I have a tattoo, you know. 
the guy in LA gave me a good advice, you know, don't put it, you know, somewhere where you can see every day because you might get bored. Yeah. So like this, I yeah, don't yeah. see and yeah, and uh, I, I like it, you know, every time <laughs> I see, oh, it looks okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, the next one I get, um, I'll get it on my back. I'll, I'll think about you. That, that'll be it. And I'll tell the yeah. guy, 15 minutes to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Goran, um, this has been like a crazy, crazy, crazy period of our lives. Um, you know, they haven't cancelled Wimbledon since the World War. Uh, tennis is on sabbatical now for God knows how long. Um, so we're all sitting at home. We're all trying to figure out what the hell the next six months of our lives is going to look like. Me as a coach, you as a coach. We're not doing very much right now, but nope. man, thanks so much for like spending time with us and uh, telling us some of your great stories. They've been great. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you like always. And uh, hopefully we're going to start. I mean, my prediction, Australian Open next year, not before that, unfortunately, but hopefully we stay all healthy and uh, all the people and this virus goes away yeah uh i agree with my friend uh i'd love to see you in new york but if not um i know we'll see you down there at the happy slam it will be a happy slam if it is the first and only one <laughs> that's for sure so yeah. thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks my friend we'll, we'll be 50 next year so we'll have to celebrate somewhere together i'll have a drink with you that, definitely definitely <laughs> okay okay my friend stay safe okay no problem you too okay bye 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 and that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Rogerian and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.